Section 10 of Edda Winter's Fire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kevin Barbudo. Edda Winter's Fire by Bernard Capes. An Eddie on the Floor. Part 2 of Polly Hister's Narrative. Continued and finished after a lapse of 40 years. With my unexpected appointment as doctor to D. Jail, I seemed to have put on the seven-league boots of success. No doubt it was an extraordinary degree of good fortune, even to one who had looked forward with a broad view of confidence. Yet, I think, perhaps on account of the very casual nature of my promotion, I never took the post entirely seriously. At the same time, I was fully bent on justifying my little cockney patron's choice by a resolute subscription to his theories of prison management. Major James Shrike inspired me with a curious conceit of impertinent respect. In person, the very embodiment of that insignificant vulgarity, without extenuating circumstances, which is a type and caricature of the ultimate cockney, he possessed a force of mind and an earnestness of purpose that absolutely redeemed him on close acquaintanceship. I found him all that he had stated himself to be, and something more. He had a noble object always in view, the employment of sane and humanitarian methods in the treatment of redeemable criminals, and he strove towards it with completely untiring devotion. He was of those who never insist beyond the limits of their own understanding, clear-sighted in discipline, frank in relaxation, and altruist in the larger sense. His undaunted persistence, as I learned, received ample illustration some few years prior to my acquaintance with him, when, his system being experimental rather than mature, a devastating endemic of typhoid in the prison had for a time stultified his efforts. He stuck to his post, but so virulent was the outbreak that the prison commissioners judged a complete evacuation of the building and overhauling of the drainage to be necessary. As a consequence, for some eighteen months, during thirteen of which the governor and his household remained sole inmates of the solitary pile, so sluggishly do we redeem our condemned social boglands, the system stood still, for lack of material to mold. At the end of over a year of stagnation, a contract was accepted and workmen put in, and another five months saw the prison reordered for practical purposes. The interval of forced inactivity must have sorely tried the patience of the governor. Practical theorists condemned to rust too often eat out their own hearts. Major Shrike never referred to this period, and, indeed, laboriously snubbed any allusion to it. He was, I have a shrewd notion, something of an officially petted reformer. Anyhow, to his abolition of the insensate barbarism of crank and treadmill in favor of civilizing methods, no opposition was offered. Solitary confinement, a punishment outside all nature to a gregarious race, found no advocate in him. A man's own suffering mind, he argued, must be, of all moral food, the most poisonous for him to feed on. Surround a scorpion with fire, and he stings himself to death, they say. Throw a diseased soul entirely upon its own resources, and moral suicide results. To sum up, his nature embodied humanity without sentimentalism, firmness without obstinacy, individuality without selfishness. His activity was so boundless, his devotion to his system so real as to admit no utilitarian sophistries into his scheme of personal benevolence. Before I had been with him a week, I respected him as I had never respected a man before. One evening, it was during the second month of my appointment, we were sitting in his private study, a dark, comfortable room lined with books. It was an occasion on which a new characteristic of the man was offered to my inspection. A prisoner of a somewhat unusual type had come in that day, 
a spiritualistic medium, convicted of imposture. To this person I casually referred. May I ask how you propose dealing with the newcomer? On the familiar lines. But surely, here we have a man of superior education, of imagination even? No, no, no. A hawker's opportunities. That describes it. These fellows would make death itself a vulgarity. You've no faith in their... Not a tittle. Heaven forfend. A sheet and a turnip are poetry to their manifestations. It's as crude and sour soil for us to work on as any I know. We'll cart it wholesale. I take you, excuse me for my saying so, for a supremely skeptical man. As to what? The supernatural. There was no answer during a considerable interval. Presently it came, with deliberate insistence. It is a principle with me to oppose bullying. We are here for a definite purpose, his duty plain to any man who wills to read it. There may be disembodied spirits who seek to distress or annoy where they can no longer control. If there are, mine, which is not yet divorced from its means to material action, declines to be influenced by any irresponsible whimsy, emanating from a place whose denizens appear to be actuated by a mere frivolous antagonism to all human order and progress. But supposing you, a murderer, to be haunted by the presentment of your victim? I will imagine that to be my case. Well, it makes no difference. My interest is with the great human system, in one of whose veins I am a circulating drop. It is my business to help to keep the system sound, to do my duty without fear or favor. If disease, say a fouled conscience, contaminates me, it is for me to throw off the incubus, not to accept it, and transmit the poison. Whatever my lapses of nature, I owe it to the entire system to work for purity in my allotted sphere, and not to allow any micro-bugbear to ride me roughshod to the detriment of my fellow drops. I laughed. It should be for you, I said, to learn to shiver like the boy in the fairy tale. I cannot, he answered, with a peculiar quiet smile. And yet prisons, above all places, should be haunted. Very shortly after his arrival, I was called to the cell of the medium, F. He suffered, by his own statement, from severe pains in the head. I found the man to be nervous, anemic, his manner characterized by a sort of hysterical effrontery. Send me to the infirmary, he begged. This isn't punishment, but torture. What are your symptoms? I see things. My case has no comparison with others. To a man of my supersensitiveness, close confinement is mere cruelty. I made a short examination. He was restless under my hands. You'll stay where you are, I said. He broke out into violent abuse, and I left him. Later in the day, I visited him again. He was then white and sullen, but under his mood I could read real excitement of some sort. Now, confess to me, my man, I said. What do you see? He eyed me narrowly, with his lips a little shaky. Will you have me moved if I tell you? I can give no promise till I know. He made up his mind after an interval of silence. There's something uncanny in my neighborhood. Who's confined in the next cell, there, to the left? To my knowledge, it's empty. He shook his head incredulously. Very well, I said. I don't mean to bandy words with you. And I turned to go. At that, he came after me with a frightened choke. Doctor, your mission's a merciful one. I'm not trying to sauce you. For God's sake, have me moved. I can see further than most, I tell you. The fellow's manner gave me pause. He was patently and beyond the pride of concealment and terrified. 
What do you see? I repeated stubbornly. It isn't that I see, but I know. The cell's not empty. I stared at him in considerable wonderment. I will make inquiries, I said. You may take that for a promise. If the cell proves empty, you stop where you are. I noticed that he dropped his hands with a lost gesture as I felt him. I was sufficiently moved to accost the warder who awaited me on the spot. Johnson, I said, is that cell empty, sir? Answered the man sharply and at once. Before I could respond, F came suddenly to the door, which I still held open. You lying cur, he shouted. You damned lying cur. The warder thrust the man back with violence. Now you, 49, he said, dry up, and none of your sauce. And he banged the door with a sounding slap, and turned to me with a lowering face. The prisoner inside yelped and stormed at the studded panels. That cell's empty, sir, repeated Johnson. Will you, as a matter of conscience, let me convince myself? I promised the man. No, I can't. You can't? No, sir. This is a piece of stupid discourtesy. You can have no reason, of course. I can't open it. That's all. Oh, Johnson, then I must go to the fountainhead. Very well, sir. Quite baffled by the man's obstinacy, I said no more but walked off. If my anger was roused, my curiosity was piqued in proportion. I had no opportunity of interviewing the governor all day, but at night I visited him by invitation to play a game of piquette. He was a man without encumbrances, as a severe conservatism designates the lairs of the cottage, and, at home, lived at ease and indulged his amusement without commitment. I found him tasting his books, with which the room was well lined, and drawing with relish at an excellent cigar in the intervals of the courses. He nodded to me, and held out an open volume in his left hand. "'Listen to this fellow,' he said, tapping the page with his fingers. "'The most tolerable sort of revenge is for those wrongs which there is no law to remedy. But then let a man take heed, the revenge be such, as there is no law to punish. Else a man's enemy is still beforehand, and is two for one. Some, when they take revenge, are desirous the party they should know, whence it cometh. This is the more generous.' For the delight seemeth to be not so much in doing the hurt as in making the party repent. But base and crafty cowards are like the arrow that flieth in the dark. Cosmus, Duke of Florence, had a desperate saying against perfidious or neglecting friends, as if these wrongs were unpardonable. You shall read, said he, that we are commanded to forgive our enemies. But you never read that we are commanded to forgive our friends. Is he not a rare fellow? Who? said I. Francis Bacon, who screwed his wit to his philosophy like a hammerhead to its handle, and knocked a nail in at every blow. How many of our friends round about here would be picking an oakum now if they had made a gospel of that quotation? You mean they take no heed that the law may punish for that which it gives no remedy? Precisely, and specifically as to revenge. The criminal, from the murderer to the petty pilferer, is actuated solely by the spirit of vengeance, vengeance blind and speechless, towards a system that forces him into a position quite outside his natural instincts. As to that, we have left nature in the thicket. It is hopeless hunting for her now. We hear her breathing sometimes, my friend. Otherwise her majesty's prison locks with rust. But, I grant you, we have grown so unfamiliar with her that we call her simplest manifestations supernatural nowadays. That reminds me, I visited F. this afternoon, 
The man was in a queer way, not foxing, in my opinion. Hysteria, probably. Oh, what was the matter with him? The form it took was some absurd prejudice about the next cell, number 47. He swore it was not empty, was quite upset about it, said there was some infernal influence at work in his neighborhood. Nerves, he finds, I suppose, may revenge themselves on one who has made a habit of playing tricks with them. To satisfy him, I asked Johnson to open the door of the next cell. Well, he refused. It is closed by my orders. That settles it, of course. The manner of Johnson's refusal was a bit uncivil, but... He had been looking at me intently all this time, so intently that I was conscious of a little embarrassment and confusion. His mouth was set like a dash between brackets, and his eyes glistened. Now his features relaxed, and he gave a short high neigh of a laugh. My dear fellow, you must make allowances for the rough old lurcher. He was a soldier. He is all cut and measured out to the regimental pattern. With him, Major Strike, like the king, can do no wrong. Did I ever tell you he served under me in India? He did, and moreover, I saved his life in there. In an engagement? Worse. From the bite of a snake. It was a mere question of will. I told him to wake and walk, and he did. They thought him already in rigor mortis. And as for him, well, his devotion to me since has been single to the last degree. That says it should be. To be sure. And he's quite in my confidence. You must pass over the old beggar's churlishness. I laughed in assent, and then an odd thing happened. As I spoke, I'd walked over to a bookcase on the opposite side of the room to that on which my host stood. Near this bookcase hung a mirror, an oblong affair, set in brass repoussé work, on the wall, and, happening to glance into it as I approached, I caught sight of the Major's reflection as he turned his face to follow my movement. I say, turned his face, a formal description only. What met my startled gaze was an image of some nameless horror, of features grooved and battered and shapeless, as if they had been torn by a wild beast. I gave a little indrawn gasp and turned about. There stood the Major, plainly himself, with a pleasant smile on his face. "'What's up?' said he. He spoke abstractedly, pulling his cigar, and I answered rudely, "'That's a damned bad-looking glass of yours!' "'I didn't know there was anything wrong with it,' he said, still abstracted and apart." And indeed, when my sheer mental effort I forced myself to look again, there stood my companion as he stood in the room. I gave a tremulous laugh, muttered something or nothing, and fell to examining the books in the case. But my fingers shook a trifle as I aimlessly pulled out one volume after another. Am I getting fanciful, I thought? I, whose business it is to give a practical account of every bugbear of the nerves? Bah! My liver must be out of order. A speck of bile in one's eye may look a flying dragon. I dismissed the folly from my mind, and set myself resolutely to inspecting the books marshaled before me. Roving amongst them, I pulled out, entirely at random, a thin, worn duodecimo that was thrust well at the back of the shelf-end, as if it shrank from comparison with its prosperous and portly neighbors. Nothing but chance impelled me to the choice, and I don't know to this day what the ragged volume was about. It opened naturally at a marker that lay in it, a folded slip of paper, yellow with age, and glancing at this, a printed name caught my eye. With some stir of curiosity, I spread the slip out. It was a title page to a volume of poems, presumably, and the author was James Shrike. I uttered an exclamation and turned, book in hand. An author, I said. You, an author, Major Shrike. To my surprise, he snapped round upon me with something like a glare of fury on his face. 
This the more startled me as I believed I had a reason to regard him as a man whose principles of conduct had long disciplined a temper that was naturally hasty enough. Before I could speak to explain, he had come hurriedly across the room and had rudely snatched the paper out of my hand. How did this get... he began, then, in a moment, came to himself and apologized for his ill manners. I thought every scrap of the stuff had been destroyed, he said, and tore the page into fragments. It is an ancient effusion, doctor, perhaps the greatest folly of my life, but it's something of a sore subject with me, and I shall be obliged if you'll not refer to it again. He courted my forgiveness so frankly that the matter passed without embarrassment, and we had our game and spent a genial evening together. The memory of the queer little scene stuck in my mind, and I could not forbear pondering it fitfully. Surely here was a new sidelight that played upon my friend and superior a little fantastically. Conscious of a certain vague wonder in my mind, I was traversing the prison, lost in thought, after my sociable evening with the governor, when the fact that dim light was issuing from the door open of cell number 49 brought me to myself and to a pause in the corridor outside. Then I saw that something was wrong with the cell's inmate, and that my services were required. The medium was struggling in the floor, in what looked like an epileptic fit, and Johnson and another warder were holding him from doing an injury to himself. The younger man welcomed my appearance with relief. Heard him guggling, he said, and thought as something was up. You come timely, sir. More assistance was procured, and I ordered the prisoner's removal to the infirmary. For a minute, before following him, I was left alone with Johnson. It came to a climax, I said, looking the man steadily in the face. He may be subject to him, sir, he replied evasively. I walked deliberately up to the closed door of the adjoining cell, which was the last on that side of the corridor. Huddled against the massive end wall, and half embedded in it, as it seemed, it lay in a certain shadow, and bore every sign of dust and disuse. Looking closely, I saw that the trap in the door was not only firmly bolted, but screwed into its socket. I turned and said to the warder quietly, Is it long since this cell was in use? You are very fond of asking questions, he answered doggedly. It was evident he would baffle me by impertinence rather than yield a confidence. A queer insistence had seized me, a strange desire to know more about this mysterious chamber, but for all my curiosity, I flushed the man's tone. You have your orders, I said sternly, and do well to hold by them. I doubt, nevertheless, if they include impertinence to your superiors. I look straight on my duty, sir, he said, a little abashed. I don't wish to give offense. He did not, I feel sure. He followed his instinct to throw me off the scent, that was all. I strode off in a fume, and after attending F in the infirmary, went promptly to my own quarters. I was in an odd frame of mind, and for long tramps my sitting room to and fro, too restless to go to bed, or, as an alternative, to settle down to a book. There was a welling up in my heart of some emotion that I could neither trace nor define. It seemed neighbor to terror, neighbor to an intense fainting pity, yet was not distinctly either of these. Indeed, where was cause for one or the subject of the other? F might have endured mental sufferings, which it was only human to help to end, yet F was a swindling rogue who, once relieved, merited no further consideration. It was not on him my sentiments were wasted. Who, then, was responsible for them? There was a very plain line of demarcation between the legitimate spirit of inquiry and mere apish curiosity. I could recognize it, I have no doubt, as a rule, 
Yet in my then mood, under the influence of a kind of morbid seizure, inquisitiveness took me by the throat. I could not whistle my mind from the chase of a certain graveyard will-o'-the-wisp, and on it went, stumbling and floundering through bog and mire, until it fell into a state of collapse and was useful for nothing else. I went to bed and to sleep without difficulty, but I was conscious of myself all the time, and of a shadowless horror that seemed to come stealthily out of the corners and to bend over and look at me, and to be nothing but a curtain or a hanging coat when I started and stared. Over and over again this happened, and my temperature rose by leaps, and suddenly I saw that if I failed to assert myself, and promptly, fever would lap me in a consuming fire. Then, in a moment, I broke into a profuse perspiration, and sank exhausted into a delicious unconsciousness. Morning found me restored to vigor, but still with the maggot of curiosity boring into my brain. It worked there all day, and for many subsequent days, and at last it seemed as if my every faculty were honeycombed with its ramifications. Then this will not do, I thought, but still the tunneling process went on. At first I would not acknowledge to myself what all this mental to-do was about. I was ashamed of my new development, in fact, and nervous, too, in a degree of what it might reveal in the matter of moral degeneration. But gradually, as the curious devil mastered me, I grew into such harmony with it that I could shut my eyes no longer to the true purpose of its insistence. It was the closed cell about which my thoughts hovered like crows circling around carrion. In the dead waste and middle of a certain night, I awoke with a strange, quick recovery of consciousness. There was the passing of a single expiration, and I had been asleep and was awake. I had gone to bed with no sense of premonition or of resolve in a particular direction. I sat up a monomaniac. It was as if, swelling in the silent hours, the tumor of curiosity had come to a head, and in a moment it was necessary to operate upon it. I make no excuse for my then condition. I am convinced I was the victim of some undistinguishable force, that I was an agent under the control of the supernatural, if you like. Some thought had been in my mind of late that in my position it was my duty to unriddle the mystery of the closed cell. This was a sop timidly held out to, and rejected my better reason. I sought, and I knew it in my heart, solution of the puzzle, because it was a puzzle with an atmosphere that visited my moral fiber. Now, suddenly, I knew I must act, or, by forcing self-control, imperil my mind's stability. All strung to a sort of exaltation, I rose noiselessly, and dressed myself with rapid, nervous hands. My every faculty was focused upon a solitary point. Without and around there was nothing but shadow and uncertainty. I seemed conscious of only a shaft of light, as it were, traversing the darkness and globing itself in a steady disk of radiance on a lone-leaf door. Slipping out into the great echoing vault of the prison and stockinged feet, I sped with no hesitation of purpose in the direction of the corridor that was my goal. Surely some resolute providence guided and encompassed me, for no meeting with the night patrol occurred at any point to embarrass or deter me. Like a ghost myself, I flitted along the stone flags of the passages, hardly waking a murmur from then in my progress. Without, I knew, a wild and stormy wind thundered on the walls of the prison. Within, where the very atmosphere was self-contained, a cold and solemn peace held like an irrevocable judgment. I found myself as if in a dream before the sealed door that had for days harassed my waking thoughts. Dim light from a distant gas jet made a patch of yellow upon one of its panels. The rest was buttressed with a shadow. A sense of fear and constriction was upon me as I drew softly from my pocket a screwdriver I had brought with me.
It never occurred to me, I swear, that the quest was no business of mine, and that even now I could withdraw from it, and no one would be the wiser. But I was afraid. I was afraid. And there was not even the negative comfort of knowing that the neighboring cell was tenanted. It gaped like a ghostly garret next door to a deserted house. What reason had I to be there at all, or being there to fear? I can no more explain than tell how it was that I, an impartial follower of my vocation, had allowed myself to be tricked by that in the nerves I had made it my interest to study and combat in others. My hand that held the tool was cold and wet. The stiff little shriek of the first screw, as it turned at first uneasily in its socket, sent a jarring thrill through me. But I persevered, and it came out readily by and by, as did the four or five others that held the trap secure. Then I paused a moment, and I confess, the quick pant of fear seemed to come gray from my lips. There were sounds about me, the deep breathing of imprisoned men, and I envied the sleepers their hard-wrung repose. At last, in one access of determination, I put out my hand, and sliding back the bolt, hurriedly flung open the trap. An acrid whiff of dust assailed my nostrils as I stepped back a pace and stood expectant of anything, or nothing. What did I wish, or dread, or foresee? The complete absurdity of my behavior was revealed to me in a moment. I could shake off the incubus here and now, and be a sane man again. I giggled, with an actual ring of self-contempt in my voice, as I made a forward movement to close the aperture. I advanced my face to it, and inhaled the sluggish air that stole forth, and, God in heaven! I had staggered back with that cry in my throat, when I felt fingers like iron clamps close on my arm and hold it. The grip, more than the face I turned to look upon in my surging terror, was forcibly human. It was the warder Johnson who had seized me, and my heart bounded as I met the cold fury of his eyes. Prying, he said, in a hoarse, savage whisper. So you will, will you? And now let the devil help you. It was not this fellow I had feared, though his white face was set like a demon's. And in the thick of my terror, I made a feeble attempt to assert my authority. Let me go, I muttered. What? You dare? In his frenzy, he shook my arm as a terrier shakes a rat, and, like a dog, he held on, daring me to release myself. For the moment, an instinct half-murderous leapt in me. It sank and was overwhelmed in a sloth of some more secret emotion. Oh, I whispered, collapsing, as it were, to the man's fury, even pitifully deprecating it. What is it? What's there? It drew me. Something unamiable. He gave me a snapping laugh like a cough. His rage waxed second by second. There was a maniacal suggestiveness to it, and not much longer, it was evident, could he have it under control. I saw it run and congest in his eyes, and, on the instant of its accumulation, he tore at me with a sudden wild strength and drove me up against the very door of the secret cell. The action, the necessity of self-defense, restored me to some measure of dignity and sanity. "'Let me go, you ruffian!' I cried, struggling to free myself from his grasp. It was useless. He held me madly. There was no beating him off, and, so holding me, he managed to produce a single key from one of his pockets, and to slip it with a rusty clang into the lock of the door. "'You dirty, prying civilian!' he panted at me, as he swayed this way and that with the pull of my body. "'You shall have your wish, by God! You want to see inside, do you? Look, then!' He dashed open the door as he spoke, and pulled me violently into the opening. A great waft of the cold, dank air came at us, and with it... What? The warder had jerked his dark lantern from his belt, and now, an arm of his still clasped about one of mine, snapped the slide open. 
Where is it? he muttered, directing the disk of light around and about the floor of the cell. I ceased struggling. Some counter-influence was raising an odd curiosity in me. Ah, he cried in a stifled voice. There you are, my friend. He was setting the light slowly, traveling along the stone flags close by the wall, over against us, and now, so guiding it, looked askance at me with a small, greedy smile. Follow the light, sir, he whispered jeeringly. I looked, and saw twirling on the floor, in the patch of radiance cast by the lamp, a little eddy of dust, it seemed. This eddy was never still, but went circling in that stagnant place without apparent cause or influence. And, as it circled, it moved slowly on by wall and corner, so that presently in its progress it must reach us where we stood. Now, droughts will play queer freaks in quiet places, and of this trifling phenomenon I should have taken little note ordinarily. But, I must say at once, that as I gazed upon the odd-moving thing, my heart seemed to fall in upon itself like a drained artery. "'Johnson!' I cried. "'I must get out of this. I don't know what's the matter, or—' "'Why do you hold me? Damn it! Man, let me go! Let me go!' I say. As I grappled with him, he dropped the lantern with a crash and flung his arms violently about me. "'You don't,' he panted, the muscles of his bent and rigid neck seeming actually to cut into my shoulder blade. "'You don't, by God. You came of your own accord, and now you shall take your belly full.' It was a struggle for life or death, or worse, for life and reason. But I was young and wiry, and held my own, if I could do a little more. Yet there was something to combat beyond the mere brute strength of the man I struggled with, for I fought in an atmosphere of horror unexplainable, and I knew that inch by inch the thing on the floor was circling around in our direction. Suddenly, in the breathing darkness, I felt it close upon us, gave one mortal yell of fear, and, with a last despairing fury, tore myself from the encircling arms, and sprang into the corridor without. As I plunged and leapt, the warder clutched at me, missed, caught a foot on the edge of the door, and, as the ladder whirled, too, with a clap, fell heavily at my feet in a fit. Then, as I stood staring down upon him, steps sounded along the corridor, and the voices of scared men hurrying up. End of section 10. This recording is in the public domain.